confidence in it. <laughs> Second Kings 18 tonight. Uh, as I mentioned this morning, this is one of the uh, only passages I can think of where there's a synoptic problem in the Old Testament, where you get, and a synoptic problem is the phrase that people use about the New Testament to describe the events of Jesus' lifetime that are described in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, the three synoptic Gospels. And you have that uh, uniquely here with the life of Hezekiah. It's described by, uh, by the author of Second Kings. It's described by the author of Second Chronicles. And Isaiah describes it as well. Isaiah was a main player in this, and we'll look at some of his descriptions of it again tonight. And this passage is an emotional roller coaster. Uh, there's surprising highs and devastating lows in here. And uh, I think it's going to be a compelling story. We're going to look at it over the next um, month or so. It'll take us probably three weeks to work through it. And uh, next week we're uh, meeting across the, the hall for a concert over there. And so, but over the next three Sundays where we're together in Second Kings, we'll be working through this uh, really powerful story. Um, and so I'm looking forward to it. And we're just going to jump right in in verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His, mother na- his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, according to all that David, his father, had done. And this is a pretty captivating opening right here, because it says that Hezekiah was an unparalleled king in the history of Israel, and that he is reigning in a manner fitting of the name of David. He is uh, conducting himself like David did. And of course, David is the hero of uh, Israelite history. He was the king who was the man after God's own heart. David was not esteemed because of his external appearance. He was not esteemed because of his, his valor. Remember, when he was chosen to be king, that was before his valor. God declared that David was going to be a leader for his people because he was a man after God's own heart. And it's helpful to remember and that David replaced Saul. Saul was the kind of king that Israel deserved. David was the kind of king that God desired for his people, and there's such a contrast there. And because of that, through Israelite history, through the rest of the Old Testament, straight into Jesus' lifetime, there was this attitude among the Israelites, if only David could be our king. If only David could be our king. Well, here tonight, it seems that David is back on the throne. He's a man who is reigning like, like David, Hezekiah has described. And that's not a compliment thrown around lightly. Remember, there's been quite a few kings in the book of 2 Kings, quite a few kings from Judah. It says they did right in the eyes of the Lord like their father had done. And remember, we talked about how that's a very low bar, a very low bar to do like your dad had done. I mean, that's, you can't get... Uh, the bar much more accessible than that. Just be like the person before you. And it reminds me of the old uh, joke, true in Los Angeles, not true here, that the most accurate weather, the most accurate way to predict the weather is what it's like today, it'll be like tomorrow. And again, that doesn't work in Virginia. But in LA, that was a rule that, that worked pretty much 97% of the time. <laughs> and the kings could be like that. They could do a decent job as king if only they did what their dad did before them. But this is a different story altogether. This is a king who's like David was. Uh, here's your little wanna quiz. How many kings in the book of First and Second Kings were a king compared to David? Do you know? I don't have any prizes or anything. Josiah. Yeah, there's going to be a total over here. Josiah, any you guys got any others? Three. Three is the right answer. In Christianity, that's the easy one, right? Three. 
Always three. Always three. And there's Hezekiah and there's, there's Asa, and we meet Hezekiah tonight. Now, what's interesting about this is he enters the scene when it is too late to do any good. What's he supposed to do here? If you remember last week, and I apologize for preaching way too long last week, but chapter 17 is a long chapter. I didn't make the divides. I just embraced them here. At the end of chapter 17, it says that Judah is going to get thrown out of their land. God has already kicked Israel out of their land. They're gone. So 10 of the 12 tribes, adios, my friends. They're out of here, never to be seen again in the Old Testament. There are two tribes left, Judah and Benjamin, and Benjamin barely counts. And chapter 17 ends by letting you know they're going to go too. They're going to go away the buffalo also. And so what, what good is this? What good is this? And it's a little bit disappointing you know that they're going to get thrown out. It's disappointing because now you know how the rest of the story goes. You just have to make your way through it. It's like, you know, when the movie starts with the scene of the funeral of the main character. You're like, well, there goes all that. <laughs> waste the next hour and a half of my life. I know he's dead. That's what you're embracing here. You know Judah is going to get exiled. You know this is not going to do any good. And then right away after that, once their fate is secure... God gives them a king like David. Now, a little contrast with this. David has been, David was 400 years before this. And the United States has been around 240 years, carry the one, something like that. And you think of those presidential approval polls, how do you rank the, our president? People say, oh, he's, he's decent, you know, he's no, you know, he's no Abraham Lincoln. And that's what Republicans say. I just wish we had somebody like, like Abraham Lincoln again. You know, or George Washington. I just wish we had George Washington again, you know. Well, that's an incredibly high bar. Like, yeah, this president's decent. He's no George Washington. Well, of course. Or this president's horrible. What are you expecting? George Washington would be nice. That's what I'm expecting. Well, I mean, you get one of those every 240 years, apparently, and counting. That's the case in Israel. It's been 400 years since David. But here he's back on the scene again. You know, we have... Lincoln and our pennies, Washington and our coins, the Israelites had David on their shekels. I don't know if they really did, but if I was in charge of it, that's what I would have put on their shekels. And it's striking that God gives them this good king precisely at the moment when he is too late to do any good whatsoever. And so now pause and ask yourself, why? Why would God do this now when it's too late? And I think the answer is to teach you a lesson. God is going to teach. God sometimes gives us good gifts that last for a moment. They're not eternal. They're just good gifts for a moment. And so you ask yourself, why does God give me this gift? It doesn't carry into glory. Why did I get to see the really cool sunrise? Or, I mean, just make something up. Why does God give you this cool gift? What's he doing with it if there's no eternal weight of glory behind it? And I think sometimes the answer is God gives us gifts to teach you something. They're object lessons. And this is an object lesson to provide us about righteousness. We're going to go to school and learn about righteousness tonight. Lessons from the trials of the godly. And these lessons, that'll be our outline tonight, lessons from the trials of the godly. These lessons all relate back to righteousness. They all relate back to righteousness. We're going to get a lesson about what true righteousness looks like. And let me define righteousness before we keep going in our, our text. Righteousness is the character of God. I think it's the most simple definition of righteousness. Righteousness is the character of God. It's conformity to the character of God. God is holy, which means he's set apart. He's not like us. 
He's morally pure. That's the idea that God is light. He's morally pure. He's positive. He's not sin. He doesn't compel you to sin. In him, there's no shifting shadow or season of change, no variation of change, James 1 says. So God is righteous. His character is righteous. All that he is is righteous. Now, you can't divide God's attributes. It's not like you get God by you know, assembling you know, righteousness and goodness and, and holiness and power and omnipotence and omnipresence. Take all those together and mix them in a mixing bowl and out comes God. That's not the way this works. God's characters are undivided. There's God's characteristics are indivisible. He's, he's a being without component parts. And so righteousness is just the word that we use to describe the moral character of his being. And I hope that, that makes sense. When you become a Christian, you are declared righteous by God. When a person comes to faith in Christ, God declares that person to, at that moment, be righteous. Now, at that moment, righteousness is not the moral characteristic of you. It's not that you now possess that quality of righteousness. No, you grow in righteousness throughout your life. But the moment of your conversion, there's a legal declaration of righteousness where God declares you legally righteous. It's like in our legal system, if a person gets declared not guilty by the judge, it actually at that moment, in the eyes of the law, doesn't matter if they did it or not, right? I'm thankful for some speeding tickets that ended that way. <laughs> but in the eyes of the law, you're declared not guilty. You have that characteristic, that legal characteristic of being not guilty despite your actual guilt. Well, at the moment of your conversion, you're declared righteous by God. You're going to grow in practical righteousness throughout your life. But you're declared righteous by God. Now here become some lessons of how we're to rightly think about righteousness. And I think Hezekiah is a great person to pull this out of because he's declared as to be a king right in the eyes of Yahweh according to David had done. David was a man after God's own heart. Becomes an example of both practical and uh, legal righteousness. And so let's jump into this first. Righteousness is not impossible. Or you can say it positively as I do. It's impossible or it is possible to lead a righteous life. Leading a righteous life is possible. And here's where people get very confused. And so I want you to understand the errors that people make before you understand the, the balance to this that Hezekiah brings. One error people make is by thinking that your deeds can make you righteous in God's sight. And that's a mistake. Doing righteous things does not make you righteous in God's sight. It's not as if you do enough good that God will see your good and think this person is righteous. And so there's this sense that all of us are separated from God and no amount of deeds can bring us back to him. So it's not as if you do more and try harder and be gooder that God's going to be cooler with you. No, your sins separate you from God. One person can't jump further from you know, our shore to Africa than another person. You might jump six inches or six feet further than me off of the you know, Ocean City Pier towards Africa, but it doesn't really matter. We all fall apart. And in a sense, our life is like that. Nobody is righteous, the Scripture says. No, not one. So to think that you can do good things to be pleasing to God is an error. But there is another error that is more common in Christianity. The antinomian error, the error of why bother with law then? Why bother with trying? If we are all fall short, if we're all sinners, 
then there's no point in striving for righteousness. There's no point in trying to do good things. After all, we all fall apart from God. And so, you know, I shake my my head and shrug my shoulders and say, why even bother trying to fight sin? Why do I want to put off sin? Why do I want to fight sin? Why do I want to grow in godliness? Why even bother? Because we all know I can't do it. And that's also a mistake. It's also a mistake. The Bible commands us to put off sin. The Bible commands us to fight against sin. Now, you're not going to arrive at the sinless life in this life. Okay, John says, whoever says they have no sin is a liar. And the truth is long moved away from that fellow. At the same time, the Bible commands you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so embrace this and look at Hezekiah as an example, as a lesson that you can learn, you know what, it is possible to lead a life with which God is pleased. It doesn't mean it's possible to do enough good things to make God happy with you, but it does mean it is possible to lead a life with which God is pleased. At the end of your life, God can look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have led an honorable life. You have put off sin. You have strove in godliness. You could ask yourself, why would anybody bother in Israel at this point? You know, has there been godliness in Israel in generations at this point? I don't think so. I mean, if you imagine you're like the last remaining Levite priest who actually had the word of God and loved it, and you're looking around at the tribe of Judah at this point, I would move out. I'd go back to Egypt or something. That's what Elijah, Elijah tried to do. He was out of there. That was a hundred years ago. Nevertheless, God raises up a person as a model to demonstrate to us that it is possible to be righteous. Now, of course, listen, it's not possible on your own to be righteous. <laughs> See that little asterisk, the little asterisk with a footnote down there? On your own, it's not possible to be righteous. This is why sanctification is synergistic is the word. It's you striving with the Holy Spirit inside of you. It's not your own power. But again, it's a mistake to say, hey, since it's not my own power, why bother? God can plug me in if he wants to. No, it's synergistic. It's two of you working together. Now, salvation is not synergistic. Salvation is monergistic. God saves you without your cooperation. But sanctification is synergistic, where you strive with the Lord. And that's the example of Hezekiah. Well, that's the first point. Righteousness, it is possible to lead a righteous life. Secondly, righteousness does produce change. Righteousness, even though it's a declaration by God in your life, it does have an effect of changing your life. Let's look at verse 4 here. Hezekiah removed the high places. He broke the pillars. He cut down the Asherah. Now just marvel at that for a second. He's at, remember all the kings we've seen that, oh, he did right in the eyes of the Lord like his dad did, but of course he didn't remove the high places. Even when I said earlier, how many kings were like David? I think the first name that somebody said was Asa. Asa was a king like David. Yeah, but do you remember there's an exception after the scripture says that? After the scripture says Asa was a good king, after the, the pattern of, of the Lord, first kings, like David, except it says he was a good king in the eyes of the Lord, like, David, like his father David, except he didn't get rid of the high places. 
Remember, that people loved the high places because they got to worship whatever the God they wanted to at the high places. They'd build their little high place, and you know, a Levite would say, hey, what are you doing there? And say, I'm worshiping Yahweh, but in their heart, they were worshiping an idol. The Old Testament allowed for what they called the high places. If you were too far away to journey to the temple, you could worship the Lord at your own house. And that, that little exception became the rule. Everybody built their high place, and they didn't want to get rid of him. And it was sinful, and they knew it was sinful, and nobody had the courage to do anything about it. Not even Asa. But Hezekiah, for the first time in 2 Kings, somebody does something to it. Hezekiah gets out his axe. He takes down the high places. He takes down the Asherah. Remember, the Asherah was a, uh, a sexually immoral pole, a phallic symbol, and they would worship in sexually immoral ways at the bottom of it. And they would always been in, in Israel. And here, Hezekiah arrives on the scene and chops them down, strikes them down. He's bringing a revival. Then in verse 4, he broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. Yikes. Broke in pieces. Uh, I told you guys about the, the um, Baptist church up the street. Uh, Braddock Road Baptist Church has got the sign on that says a spirit-filled Baptist church. And uh, I, I met the pastor one day. He often goes walking in my neighborhood. I talk to him often. He's a, he's a great guy. And one day I asked him, uh, so your sign says a spirit-filled Baptist church. Are, are you, aren't you... Like, that phrase kind of implies a charismatic kind of church. You know, like, do you guys speak in tongues is what the sign implies, right? You guys think that when you drive by. I'm not alone in this. I know you think that. Are they, are they handling serpents in there? What's going on in there? So I asked him, and he's like, yeah, I know. But listen, nobody wants to be the pastor that takes spirit field off of the sign. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I can live in that world. <laughs> Nobody wants to be the king that gets rid of Moses' snake. And that's what's happening here. Now, Moses' snake, this is from Numbers 21. Do you remember the story? The people had sinned against God by grumbling and complaining. And I mean, that's the story of all of Numbers. And at this moment, God strikes them with the serpents. Says, you want to grumble? Fine, snakes. And everybody panics and runs away. I was at a staff chapel at uh, a previous church where... The pastor, the executive pastor, has all the staff in a room, just like this, actually. And uh, he brought show and tell that day. He opens up this box and takes out this orange corn, corn snake um, to show us all this. His son got a new pet, I guess. And in the front row was this woman, Kathleen Swanson. I hope she listens to this. I know her son often listens to my sermons. So I hope he hears this and passes it along to his mom. But she was sitting front and center. And when the corn snake came out, all that was left there was a puff of smoke where she was sitting, like... <laughs> Wiley e. Coyote style or Roadrunner, whoever runs away, just a puff of smoke and the door is open and Rick was the executive pastor, puts the snake back in the box and it's like, yikes, okay, somebody go get Kathleen, tell her to come back. We go looking for Kathleen, she's gone. Her car is gone. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Not coming back. That's what the Israelites did when the snakes come out. They bolt, they run to the hills, they're, off back. they're going back to Egypt, they're getting out of there. And the snakes are biting, and they're dying. And God tells Moses, Moses begins praying for the people, and God tells Moses, Numbers 21, take, go get, you know, blacksmith and make a bronze serpent and raise him up on a pole. That's where the logo for the hospitals comes from, by the way. Raise him up on a pole. And then tell the Israelites, if you're running away, stop running and in faith, look at the serpent and be healed. 
And so the very thing that struck them is what they had to look at to be healed. And Jesus in John 3, just to finish out that, that narrative through the Bible, in John 3, Jesus takes that and applies it to himself. People are dying because of sin. They're dying because they're in the image of Adam. Here comes God in human flesh in the image of Adam, taking on, in a sense, our sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our place, 2 Corinthians 5 says. We read that earlier. So Jesus is telling people, sin is killing you. Sin is destroying you. You're dying from the sin virus. Stop running and look to Christ for salvation. That's what he is. He is like the serpent lifted in the wilderness. And so the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross. And whoever believes in him, who stops and looks in faith at the serpent at Christ on the cross will be healed. The image, of course, is what is killing you is what will save you if you look to it in faith. What is killing them was the snakes. They would look at it in faith. It becomes a symbol of putting faith in God and stop running from yourself and put your faith in God who provides a substitute. That's what the snake stands for. What a twisted perversion of that story to then prop up the snake and worship it. But that's what they're doing in Israel. They found the snake. I don't know where they hid it. I don't know where they stashed this, but they've got it. Hundreds of years later, they still got the snake and they're worshiping the snake. Who knows if it was really even the same snake? I don't know. Luther wrote about how in, in Germany, the, so many churches had uh, jars of Mary's breast milk, they said. And just 1500s, do some math on the timeline there. Uh, but it was supernatural. It hadn't spoiled. And so... People would worship Mary's breast milk. Isn't that appalling? You know, they had, all the churches had nails from the cross. Luther's joke was that there was enough nails in German churches to shoe every horse in Saxony. <laughs> and people thought they could be made right with the Lord through the nails or through the milk, not through the person they pointed to. And that's what Hezekiah inherits. Where the bad people are worshiping the Asherah poles, the good people are worshiping Moses' snake. Well, Hezekiah goes to town. He produces change. He gets rid of the temptations. He destroys them. He doesn't just destroy the, the idols, but he begins directing people away from them. And that's Hezekiah's story. The righteousness that he has in his heart is actually producing change in the people's lives. Now, the danger here, as I mentioned earlier, is to think that Hezekiah was righteous because he did those things. I mean, please, if you hear that, then you're getting the gospel upside down. You're reading this backwards like, like Hebrew. <laughs> Hezekiah is not righteous because he did these things. He does these things because he is righteous. Do you see the difference? It's a critical difference. Righteousness expresses itself in deeds, but deeds do not make you Righteous. Righteousness is a declaration from God that has an expression in this life. And it is not an expression that leads to a declaration. It's a declaration that leads to an expression. Let me say that sentence one more time. Righteousness is not an expression that leads to a declaration. It is a declaration where God declares you to be righteous that leads to an expression in your life. In other words, righteousness does produce change. Thirdly, the real reason Hezekiah is righteous is because righteousness comes from faith. This is where you see verse 5. Righteousness comes from faith. He trusted in Yahweh. This is not a throwaway verse. This is the main point. 
In my Bible, I've got it boxed in. This is the main point. Hezekiah is righteous because he trusted in Yahweh. That's the cause. The God of Israel. So that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Nobody else was like him. Somebody asked me last week, who was a better king, Hezekiah or Josiah? And I think I said Josiah, because there's a Puritan paperback named after him. But this verse reminds me that that was an incorrect answer. It says nobody was as good in Israel as he was of all the kings of Israel, even after him. And remember, this author is the one who wrote about Josiah later on. Hezekiah stands out. He stands out. Four, verse six, here's why. The four here is the causal. For he held fast to the Lord. Remember, don't confuse cause and effect. If you get a medal for bravery, the medal does not mean that you're brave. If a soldier gets the medal for valor, the medal does not make them brave. You understand that, right? The bravery they had earlier is what produced the medal. Hezekiah was righteous because he clung to Yahweh. It was his clinging to Yahweh that resulted in his declaration of righteousness. And this is a fascinating word here, verse verse 6. For he held fast to Yahweh. He trusted in Yahweh is the way it's rendered up in verse 5. This word held fast is a critical word. It's a word from Genesis 2. That Adam and Eve will hold fast to one another. The ESV translates it held fast. If you have New American Standard, it says they're joined together. And that makes sense when you're Adam and Eve. They're they're joined together. They become one flesh. It's speaking of of the act of of marriage. That's the phrase. They, they They will cling together and become one flesh. That's this word here. That Hezekiah is clinging to Yahweh. He's holding fast to Yahweh. King James even translates it cling. And I like that word. That Hezekiah is clinging. He's holding on to his Lord for dear life. That's why verse 5 says there was nobody else like him. That's why verse 6 says he didn't not part from following Yahweh his whole life, but he kept the commandments that Yahweh had commanded Moses. Again, this doesn't mean he was perfect, but it means he took action. It means he held on to the Lord. Verse 7, Yahweh was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. That's a good thing right there. It's good to rebel against Assyrians. You don't have to know about the geopolitical nature of the ancient Near East. You just have to know when Israelites rebel against Assyrians, it's always good. He struck down the Philistines. The Philistines? Sorry, did this become 2 Samuel again? (laughs) We're We're back with the life of David. David is the last guy we saw striking Philistines with stones in the head. He's just like David. And he's reclaiming territory. From watchtower to fortified city, he'll take anything. Anything the Philistine owns, Hezekiah will take it. It doesn't matter if it's got a watchtower or walls, he doesn't care. He's, he's the repo man for the Philistines. <laughs> That's Hezekiah. His life became an adventure because of his faith. Wherever God directed, he led. The Lord brought him from Jerusalem through Philistine. He expanded Judah again. He did all of this because he trusted God to defend him. It's interesting to me that in Second Chronicles... Second Chronicles spends two chapters, actually three chapters, covering the religious reforms of Hezekiah and only one chapter covering his military exploits. He gets three full chapters about how he cut down the high places and one brief chapter, actually, about his military exploits. And that lets you know where God stresses. One was resulted from the other. Fourthly, righteousness stands out. Righteousness stands out. 
verses 9 through 12. I'm not going to spend too much time because it's kind of a summary of chapter 17. Maybe we should have just looked at that last week, but let me read it for you. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalman, sir, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of three years, it's talking about the northern tribe, the ten other uh, tribes, remember, the northern territory. At the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria, put them in Halah and on Habor and the river Gozan and the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant Yahweh, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. That is all a summary of what we talked about last week. They rejected God's covenant, so God rejected them. That's the story. The ten tribes are gone. We covered that earlier. So just ask yourself, why is that recorded here then? There's a whole chapter we just finished reading about. Why do we get part two here? And I, again, it goes back to the answer. It's to give you the contrast that Hezekiah was righteous and he's not in a world of righteous people. He's not in a world where godliness is appreciated. Do you ever do the cop out in your mind? Like, of course the Bible people could lead godly lives because look, they're, around, they're in the Bible. They're around Bible people, right? <laughs> Isn't that a good thing? And then you read the Bible and like, yikes. <laughs> Hezekiah was, it's not like he went to Awana, okay? <laughs> Do you remember his dad? His dad was completely unrighteous, taken and, you know, kidnapped because he tried to attack the king of Israel, kidnapped, then ransomed out and then murdered by his followers. That was his dad. He, he comes from a dysfunctional family. Don't picture Hezekiah growing up with like, you know, a two-camel garage and everything, you know, suburban in Jerusalem. And it's not his life. He was in a world where nobody loved Yahweh. And now, I mean, look at who he's surrounded by. Syrians on one side, Edomites on the other, Assyrians, then Egyptians. And they're all gone now, but not Hezekiah. This is the day when Assyria ruled the world, but Assyria did not rule Hezekiah. Assyria conquered Israel, but they did not conquer Judah because of Hezekiah. Hezekiah loves the Lord, and God is with him. Israel does not, and so God is not. Lesson learned. <laughs> Righteousness stands out. Number five, righteousness does not eliminate trials. Righteousness does not eliminate trials. So just think of how much we've talked about how good Hezekiah is. Nobody's like him. Amen? And now, verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, he's been a righteous king for 14 years. One, four. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, villainous Sennacherib, comes up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them? Okay, what? <laughs> what do you mean they took them? I thought Hezekiah was a godly king. I thought he was rocking Philistines in the head. And now he's losing his land again? That's not supposed to happen. Only ungodly people are supposed to lose their land. Who told you that? <laughs> I mean, this is the point. Even godly people have trials. And the author just puts this here for you, just to, for, to smack you a little bit. Hezekiah was godly. This attack from the Assyrians is not because of anything wrong Hezekiah did. In fact, it's because he did right things. You know, he rebelled against them. He, over, he stopped giving them the kings. He stopped giving them God's money. And now he lost his fortified cities. And by the way, Fortified cities, and what are we talking about between Assyria and Jerusalem? 
I mean, two cities, Lachish maybe and Jericho, depending on how you go, there's not a lot left. And so I think the idea here is that they're encroaching in on Jerusalem. I don't know what Bethlehem was like there, but it would have been fallen if it was even fortified. I mean, Jerusalem's surrounded is the point. Hezekiah is leading a godly life, and here the Assyrians come knocking, and they do more than knocking. They start conquering Judah. They're surrounding Jerusalem. It's important to understand. I mean, I remember talking to a guy who was a... Uh, actually, his son went to a college minister I was part of, and his son asked me to go talk to his dad. His dad was a music pastor at a church, and his, uh, one of his family members, I believe it was his sister, if I remember right, uh, died of, of cancer very suddenly. And this guy who was a music pastor was devastated by this and uh, told me that he was going to leave the faith. He was quitting his job as a church in San Diego, and he was going to walk away from the faith. And I met with him with his... Uh, college-age son, and he said, I mean, the gist of what his objection was is if this, he'd been praying for a sister for so long, and if this could happen to a family like his, they were raised in the church, their, their you know, grandfather, his dad was a pastor, and all this, they, they did all the right things, right? Generations of, of pastors here. And yet, the person dies of cancer. That's not supposed to happen. That was the attitude. That's not supposed to happen. God's supposed to hear our prayers. I mean, I understand why those pagan Californians die of cancer, but not those in the church. I mean, if God is who he is, shouldn't he be hearing their prayers? If God is real, how come he's not answering my prayers? If God is real, how come I'm leading the godly life and I'm not getting my prayers answered? The people I love still get cancer and still die. If God is real, how come Hezekiah is a man after God's own heart and is still losing his land? That's the gist. That's why I titled tonight's sermon, why, What Happens When Bad Things Happen to Good Kings? That's the question, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Listen, hey, there's bad things in the world. So this is a more nuanced version of the, the theodicy question. Theodicy question, why, how can God be good and there still be evil? But let's nuance it a little bit. Let's say, hey, I get how God can be good and there can be evil because there's evil people. Good enough. But I'm not an evil person. How come bad things happen to me? If Christianity is true, how come I follow Jesus and don't get all my prayers answered? Hey, look, I get it. The Israelites go into captivity. Good for them. They deserved it. But Judah shouldn't. Phrase it this way. What's the point of being righteous if bad things still happen to you? And that's the entitlement mentality, isn't it? That because of my deeds, I am owed God's ear. Because of my deeds, God's got to listen to me. I don't even mean that in a self-righteous sense. I mean that when there seems to be innocent people that are suffering. God, why don't you hear me? Why don't you hear them? After all, we are being righteous. And that, I mean, notice what you're doing when you think like that. You're taking God out of the center of the, the story, the center of the Bible, the center of your thinking, and you're putting yourself there. Because now what is good and bad is defined as how it relates to you rather than how it relates to God. Remember how we started this story? Why did God give Israel Hezekiah? So that they could learn about righteousness. And listen, bad things can still teach you about righteousness. If I had more time to unpack that, I would. But the gist of it is, hey, bad things happen, but God is doing something through them. Learn what he's doing. You don't get all your questions answered. But you better start there, that God is doing something. That's why bad things happen to good kings, so that good kings and their followers and those that read about them generations later can learn a thing or two about it. That's the rub of this chapter, though, isn't it? 
foreign armies are surrounding Jerusalem and David is on the throne. Had they just kept their idolatry, maybe the Assyrians would have conquered them. But here they are, under attack. Number six, righteousness does not equal sinlessness. Righteousness does not equal sinlessness. Just because Hezekiah was a good king after David's own heart doesn't mean he was perfect. There's nobody in the Bible other than Jesus that it's safe to say, go and do likewise after everything they did. (laughs) And such is the case with Hezekiah. He's not going to respond to this trial well. Verse 14, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I'll bear. So he's going to bribe the king of Assyria off. He doesn't go to the Lord. He goes to the cash instead. The king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, a massive amount, 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of Yahweh and all the treasuries of the king's house. And that's a mistake, remember? You can't bribe Assyrians. I mean, what do you think will happen? If a guy mugs you on the metro, takes out his gun and says, hey, give me 100 bucks, and you take out your wallet and you've got a wad of hundreds in there. <laughs> Here you go, here's one. And you put the rest back. And what do you think is going to happen? He says, give me 50 bucks and take out 100 and you ask him if he's got change. You're not going to get change. <laughs> and the muggers do not give change. <laughs> here the king of Assyria says, hey, give me your cash. And Hezekiah says, okay, here you go. Here's, here's a bunch of gold from the temple. What do you think the king of Assyria's next play is going to be? Thank you, here's your receipt. Put it on your taxes, see you next year? I don't think so. So, verse 17, the king of Assyria sent the tartan. The commentators love to talk about what the tartan is. Let me just give you the short version. It's bad. I don't know, some kind of monster or something, or great military leader with some monstrous name. The Rabsaris and the Rabashekah, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah, Jerusalem. They went up and they came to Jerusalem, so now he's got the tartan on his hands. I mean, he's surrounded by not just evil armies, but wickedly fierce generals. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. Worth pausing here. Here is, Steve, you've been to Israel. You've gone through Hezekiah's tunnel, probably. The Americans love to do that. Uh, Israelis find it hilarious um, to see... You know, they gather around. It's this tunnel that goes underground. It's, I don't know how long it is, but it's long. A quarter mile, half mile or something like that. And it's deep underground. There's a creek running through it. So you bring water shoes and you get a headlamp on you and you go to the tunnel and you walk through it with your headlamp on and you come out at the other end in like a park. Um, it'd be like if you looked out towards Braddock there and you saw a bunch of tourists coming out of the pipe that comes out by the soccer fields, you would, you know, with headlamps on and what are you doing? Oh, there's a famous Civil War general sought safety in here, so we're retracing his steps. Okay. Anyway, Americans go to Israel and like going through Hezekiah's tunnel. This is that. Hezekiah is surrounded. He digs a tunnel to bring in water from outside the city gate so that his troops and his country can survive. And so the enemies gather around them, verse 18, and they called for the king. And there came out to them Elikiah, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rebshekah said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Now that Operation Bribe Assyria has failed, we've got a showdown on their hands, and the king asked them the question, What are you trusting? What are you trusting? And there's no real good answer to this. 
the Israelites should have said we're trusting in Yahweh. That's the right answer, but that's not what they do. Instead, they trust in their water. This is what Isaiah has to say about this showdown. I wish we had more time to go through this in more detail, but Isaiah has some words about this. This is Yahweh rebuking Israel for how they handled this conversation. You saw the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the horses of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or who planned this long ago. God is shouting at them saying, who do you think sent the Assyrians? They were so confident that they could survive because of they had this nifty tunnel. And it is a nifty tunnel. You can walk through it today, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, that's neat. But they didn't call to God. And they didn't say, hey, is God trying to teach us a lesson here? In that day, the Lord Yahweh of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing of sackcloth. I mean, God wanted the Israelites to mourn over their sin. Behold, instead there was joy and gladness, killing of oxen and slaughtering sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, that's the attitude behind the walls. The Israelites are saying, hey, God's not going to help us, so we may as well go out in style. They're doing their Thanksgiving dinner. They're not going to be starved to death. They're going to do a feast that night and let the Assyrians slaughter them tomorrow. That's their plan. Not praying. And now the guy, and God is upset about this, by the way, if you can't tell. And now the guy on the other side of the wall comes out and asks them, what are you doing? Who are you trusting in? They don't say Israel. They don't say Yahweh. Verse 20, do you think that mere words and strategy are power for war? In whom do you trust now that you've rebelled against me? Why trust? Why have faith when you have water was the Israelites' answer. Have you seen our cool tunnel? Verse 21, behold, you're now trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff. I mean, this is like old school trash talking right here. You guys trust in Egypt. You think Egypt's going to save you? It shall pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all who trust in him. But if you say to me, oh, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before his altar in Jerusalem? You can tell he doesn't know what he's talking about here, right? He doesn't get the dynamics. It's like me talking trash at a baseball game. Pitcher, you're so bad, he can't hit anything you throw. Maybe that's not quite how baseball works. <laughs> He's telling the Israelites, you trust in Yahweh? Hey, if you loved Yahweh so much, how come your king cut down all those idols to him? Well, if you know anything about Yahweh, you know it's actually a good thing. And this king keeps ranting with his trash talking on and on. It actually gets pretty funny here. Verse 23, come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can even find riders to put on them. That's, I have the word funny written in my column right there. I'll give you 2,000 horses, but you probably don't even have people who know how to ride them. Moreover, is it without Yahweh that I've come up against this place to destroy? And here he accidentally speaks theological truth. Accidentally. He says, of course your God sent me to do this. Yahweh said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. So then Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. This military leader shouting at them in Hebrew. And the Israelite response to this whole tirade is to come out and say, hey, could you talk to us in Aramaic because we don't want to scare the people. Before I show you how the Reb Shekha responds to that polite request, let me show you how God responds to it. This is back in Isaiah. God has some words to say about this. And as you saw, 
the breaches, uh, is that the verse we looked at earlier? Well, I don't have the verse. Oh, no, it is right. No, it's not. But you're going to have to trust me. God responds with some harsh words. <laughs> he responds by telling them, oh, here we go. This says the Lord Yahweh of hosts, come, go to the steward Shebna, the one who said this, who's over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out a tomb for yourself, speaking of the Hezekiah's tunnel, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve on a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, Yahweh will hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, your shame of your master's house. So the Lord was not stoked with his answer of, hey, talk to us in Aramaic. <laughs> because what is he not? He's not trusting the Lord here. He's trying to save his face and God says, you can save your face, but I will throw you really, really far away. Well, the Reb Shekha, verse 27, says to him, As my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. I mean, the rich people lived on the wall. It's like a cruise ship, okay? <laughs> the cheaper houses are inside the city. The suburbs are out on the wall where you have a nice view. They paid extra for that. And that's who can hear the Reb Shekha saying, Hey, you're all going to go down. And now he says, I'm going to speak whatever language I want to. I'm going to talk to the people who are going to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Then the Reb Shekha stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. He's speaking Hebrew here. Hear the word of the great king, king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us and the city will not be given in the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine and eat his own fig tree. Each of you will drink his own water and his own cistern. That sounds good until verse 32. Until I come take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bre uh, bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying Yahweh will deliver us. He says, hey, I got peace for you. I got peace for you. Just participate in our relocation program. <laughs> Our vineyard relocation program. We got nice fields for you. Here's a brochure. Just to, you just pay the maintenance fees. You'll love it. Verse 33. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepherdim, Hena, and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among, and notice that he just listed all the gods of Samaria, which should have been Yahweh, and he doesn't even realize that the Samarians, you know, were supposed to be worshiping the same God as the, the, the uh, tribe of Judah, and they were worshiping all these idols. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that Yahweh would deliver Jerusalem out of my hands? The people were silent and answered him not a word. Oh, their lack of faith is astonishing. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rav Shekah. Well, obviously, he's gone too far. One commentator, we'll look at this next time, refers to this as God in the hands of an angry sinner. <laughs> I mean, God was happy to punish the People in Jerusalem for their lack of faith. He's happy to take the recorder and hurl him around like a ball and fling him out to the field. I mean, that will still happen, by the way. But now, he went up 
and brought the integrity of Yahweh into this. You know, God is not going to share his glory with someone else. He has no problem with his people going in captivity, but they will not be led into captivity with somebody who says, hey, the fact that I beat you shows that Yahweh is just like all those other worthless gods. Obviously, all false gods are more or less the same, but if there is one real God, then obviously he would be different than all the false gods. And so it's interesting that the idea that Yahweh is real never even crosses Rabshakeh's mind. It doesn't dawn on him. Maybe there is a real God that will not be pleased with me mocking him. Well, next week, we'll see God jog his memory. Lord, we're thankful for the truth that you make us righteous. You do that not because we deserve it, but you do it because of your grace. We can't earn any of this favor. We can't earn any merit that you give us. We are beggars, but Lord, we have an answer for that question. On what ground do we trust? On what ground do we stand thinking that we have confidence to stand before you? Well, it's simple, Lord. We stand on the ground of the cross. We stand at Golgotha. We stand in the shadow of the cross. We stand because our Savior died for us. We stand in Him. We don't stand in our own, but we stand in Christ. He has made us righteous. We belong to Him. We don't trust in anything of our own. We don't trust in any work we do. We trust in the Savior who bought us who rescued us, who loves us. And so we have confidence to stand before you tonight. We're grateful that you hear our prayers because we pray in the name of Christ. You hear our prayers because we have access to you not through our own works, not through our own righteousness, but you hear our prayers because we come to you with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, I do pray that as this week goes by, that we would grow in our practical righteousness. We would grow in godliness. That there would be people here tonight who will put off specific sins this week and they will learn to trust you more. Lord, we're grateful for the love you've shown us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.